So we are, we're in a new year. Brandon, this is my first day back. Again, we were in China uh, or the first, for the first part of January. Thank you all for supporting us in that trip. Um, please stay afterwards as we, as we uh, do a presentation on it. And so before we get right back into the Gospel of John, I thought we would take a couple of weeks of uh, beginning of the new year, the last two weeks in January, to talk about our focus for the coming year and by remembering it, what it is that we are doing here. The title of the sermon today is, What Are We Doing Here? Because it's very easy for the church to lose its way and to forget about what it is that Jesus has called us to do. And so we uh, will be uh, looking at Matthew chapter uh, 28, verses 16 through 20. I, I think in your worship guides it only has verse 18, 18 through 20. But we really need to go back and look at 16 through 20 uh, to, for the whole thing. And so uh, could I ask you to please just stand one more time out of respect for the reading of God's Word. The Word says that, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. So let's all listen intently together to God's inerrant and perfect word. Now the eleven disciples went into Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word and the blessing it is to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate us. Lord, we are so tempted to forget that you are with us. We are so tempted to believe that we are alone in the world. We are so tempted to foolishly believe that we have nothing but our own weakness to operate from. And so, Lord, we pray uh, that you would protect us as a church from the temptations of the world and the prevailing winds of culture that seek to redefine us in, in its image rather than the image of God. Uh, and we pray that you would help us to know what you've called us to do. And not only that, to know that you are with us in your power and your presence, Lord. So we pray that you would encourage us today and challenge us through your word. We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you beautify your afflicted ones. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the better books I read last year was by an author named Simon Sinek, and the book was called Start With Why. The book is all about how great leaders and institutions are able to inspire and succeed because they are clearly focused on and they communicate why it is that they exist. He gives Apple Corporation as a positive example of who's been able to do this. They clearly communicate to the world that they exist to challenge the status quo and to bring the power of technology to the people. And so they've been successful across a range of different technology areas in producing products that we wouldn't normally think a computer company might do because they have ste- they've kept and, and focused on the why. Why do they exist? Why do they do what they do? He gives Walmart as an example of a, of a company that's lost its way. In the beginning, Walmart was very focused on being able to provide people with better value, but then they lost their way by focusing just on low prices 
to the, at the expense of people and it's caused scandal and it's caused their name and their integrity to be tarnished in the world because they've lost the why. They've forgotten about the why they exist and they went off in different directions. And unfortunately, the same can be said of the church. There are huge swaths of the church, especially the American church, that have lost their way because we have lost focus on what the simple core mission of the church is. And we would just run out of time if I tried to explain or try to lay out all the different ways that the church has lost its way uh, and they're so, they're so manifold because we are constantly under pressure. The world is constantly pressuring us. Uh, the prevailing winds of culture are constantly pressuring us to accept the values and the beliefs of the world and, and, and as, we, as we are unguarded or as we lose focus and forget about why we are here and what God has called us to do, it uh, becomes all too easy for us to shift in different correct directions to lose the why, to lose our focus on why we are here and what it is we're supposed to be doing. And that is very much happening right now in our culture, in our time, in our day, in our age. If we step back and we step back from the timeline of history and look at just our culture over the last 400 years or so, as we have separated ourselves from revelation as the source of knowledge, it sent how do we know things into a state of chaos, which then ultimately produced uh, our understanding of the reality into a sense of chaos. And once we undermined and got rid of a solid foundation for how do we know things and then how do we, what is reality those are, what the, those are the foundations of ethics. Those are the foundations of morals. Once those things have been jettisoned, we are now, we've been thrust out into this age where we are in total moral chaos now because we don't have any foundation. And that moral chaos is very much pressing itself in on us, trying to get us to believe that we are something other than what we are. Uh, and so we have to be clear on what it is that we're all about. And Jesus here tells us that we exist to make disciples, which means that we exist to make believers who are totally committed to a biblical worldview. Not people, not smorgasbord Christians that take a little Christianity, a little Buddhism, a little Hinduism, a little secularity, and wrap it up into a burrito of convenience but Christians who believe like Christians, who think like Christians in a holistic way across the board and then act like Christians in all areas of life. That's what a disciple is. That's what God has called us to make. And Matthew here, Jesus says that that happens through three verbs. Go, baptize, teach. Go, baptize, teach. And so the big idea, the main thesis of this passage, the one thing that Jesus wants us to know more than anything else is this, is that the purpose of the church is to go out, to bring in, and to grow up new believers into a holistic Christian faith. And we can do that because the power and presence of God is always with us. The purpose of the church is to go out, to bring in, and to grow up new believers into a holistic Christian faith, and we can do that because the power and presence of God is always 
with us. Let's work through that one little phrase at a time. First, the purpose of the church is to go out. Look at Matthew verse 28, verse 19. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. If we, look at a, if we were to do a biblical theology, in other words, if we were to look at this whole story of redemption, and we looked at the, the word go, and we developed a biblical theology of the verb go, we would find that it is central to the, to the faith. It's central to the Bible, central to the Christian faith, all the way from the very beginning. In the beginning, the Bible is a story of God coming to us, the Holy Spirit going, creating life in the waters, Abraham going, uh, Jesus coming to us. The whole trajectory of the gospel is from God to us, and now the church going out into the world. It's a central core verb throughout the text. If we were to do a systematic theological study of the word go, in other words, if we were to take all the parts of the Bible that talk about going and we were to organize it into a systematic uh, discussion of what it is the Bible talks about, what does the Bible say about going, we would see that there's order and that there's structure to that. That God has made order in the church, that he has given officers to the church. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that he has, the, God, the Lord has given at first apostles to lay down the foundations of the church. And then, and then on top of that he sent out evangelists and pastors and teachers. So there's very much, we have to acknowledge the reality that there is a special officer, special offices in the church to accomplish this mission. But that doesn't mean that we don't all somehow play a part in the going. If we look at Acts chapter 11, the story of the early church, is, it's, uh, if you read it closely, it's, all, it, it's, it's almost going to be kind of funny because Jesus right at the very beginning tells them, go out to the ends of the earth and their first move is to stay in Jerusalem and to huddle. It really takes the martyrdom of, the, of Stephen, the deacon, and then the pursuing Uh, persecution that came after that to just drive all of the early Jewish Christian church out of Jerusalem. They have to leave for their lives and then they go out into into the Greek cities and still they're only witnessing to Jews. Finally, some guys from Libya show up, some guys from Cyprus show up and they are the first ones to proclaim the gospel, regular guys proclaiming the gospel to Greeks and the Gentile mission fires off. Gentiles start coming to faith in, in astonishing numbers. It surprises everybody, even though it's been the clear, even though it's been exactly what Paul has been teaching, what Jesus has been teaching, what the prophets taught from the very beginning. They're astonished by it. Uh, and so, what that tells us is that everybody, to at least some extent, we are all commanded to take part in this going out. We have to have balance. Not everybody's an evangelist. Not everyone's a pastor. You take an introverted person who is gifted with service and, and, and mercy and send them out to be an evangelist, they're going to freak out. That is an un, that's a disservice to that person, right? But they can still, there's some sense where they are able to play a role in this going out. And the reality is, if we do a practical theological study of go, in our context, in our post-Christian context, what it means for you and for me, 
for all of us is that literally every time we walk out our door, we are going out. And the reality is that when we go out, especially for people who know that we are Christians, we are representing the church, we're representing Jesus. People, like it or not, are making a judgment about the church and about Jesus through what they know from us. And, and, and the good news about that is that they're not making, not, that's not a judgment based on your perfection. Praise God for that, or we would be in trouble. But it is, they are making a judgment based on your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness and your, your comportment in life, your justice. Do you represent, are you seeking to represent these things? And so, just by walking out of the house, we need to remember that we are engaged in this aspect of going. Because everywhere we go here in San Diego is essentially mission field. Uh, but that is a blessing. That's an astonishing blessing if we think about it. Because it means that we get to be part of something bigger than just us. And we get to be about something bigger than just whatever it is life, this world has to offer. My wife was talking, and I remember the context of it, but she made the comment, something, something to the effect of, you know, life has to be something about, about something more than the next dessert you get to eat. Because if it's not, despair. If life is nothing more then whatever little sensual pleasure you can get next, that is miserable, that is misery. But it's not. For us as Christians, as those who belong to Christ, what we're about is something so much bigger, so much bigger than that. What's the difference between a security guard, a rental cop, rent a cop at a strip mall versus a federal agent? It's a big difference, right? I mean, there's not a lot of respect to the rent-a-cop at the strip mall, amen? <laughs> but to the federal agent, the federal agent shows up at your door, that's weighty, weighty. Uh, and the, re- the difference is, not the man, although the federal agent may be more skilled, the difference is in who that person represents. As Christians, we have been given the opportunity to represent, to be ambassadors, uh, to be agents of the kingdom of God on earth. And that is an amazing thing. We have been trusted, entrusted with this ministry of reconciliation. So the question is, is that, is that how we think? Is that, how we're, is that our minds? Is that how we're working? When we get up in the morning, are we preparing ourselves is that our first thought in the morning? I'm going out today to be an agent of Jesus Christ as an ambassador of the gospel to, as, for, to work in and through God's providence and his spirit to bring life to dead people. Or are we thinking about other things? Centered around us and our next dessert. The reality is the reality, Christian, is that when we walk out of the house, yes, we walk in the mission field, that can be scary, but we walk out uh, as representatives of the kingdom of God. And that is an astonishing privilege 
and its astonishing power. And to add to that, this is a writer on the end. When we think about going out, we usually think about geographically. I think, as you know, I've been reflecting on this passage over the last few days, we also need to be thinking about the fact that most of the borders that we will cross as Christians are not international borders, but they're, they're inter-ideological borders. In a, in, a divi- in a divisive society, the reality is that we need to be able to go across the borders that divide us ideologically in such a way that we can present the gospel to people in ways that they can understand, in ways that they can hear. Paul talks about becoming all things to all people so that by any means he might save some. He's not saying that we need to condone or sign on to immorality or to engage in any sort of immoral behavior, but it does mean that we need to be wary. It does mean we need to be conscious of the fact about how we're doing things might alienate other people and lose us opportunities to share the faith. If your Facebook page is, is, is full of posts that are just blasting the other side of the ideological divide in our country, uh, it's very unlikely that you're going to get an opportunity to talk about spiritual things with anybody that holds those beliefs. Not saying we can't open, we can't have reasoned debate if that's possible, but it does say, what I am saying is that our priority is representing Jesus, not any political party. Our, 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 our priority is to represent Christ and to be his ambassador. And that's what we need to focus on. So, summing up, first command to go out to where people are and proclaim Christ, which is good, but it's not enough. It's not the end goal. We don't just go out and pray for people and leave. There's a goal to that. And the goal is to bring people in. The purpose, point two, the purpose of going out is to bring in. Verse 19 again. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. To be baptized into the name, notice that's singular, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit means many things, some of which are, two of which at least are, to be brought into formal affiliation with the life of the covenant community, the church, as the visible representation of God's kingdom on earth, uh, and also, and not in place of, to be brought symbolically into the divine life of the triune God through our union with Christ. Both of those things are implicit in that understanding of that command to baptize. It's, not, it's, not, it's to bring people in, but to bring people into a real, not just a relationship, but a real formal affiliation with God's church. Imagine if you were to meet somebody and you said, what did you do, what do you do? And they said, I'm a student. And you said, oh, where do you go to school? And they say, oh, I don't go to school anywhere. I just, I'm a student of life. I mean, you'd probably give that guy a pass because people think like that and talk like that, right? But you'd think, you'd be like, okay, got it. Not real student, but you're like your own kind of student. All right, that's cool. Now, but 
taking our last the illustration from the last point, what if, somebody, what if someone came up to you and said, I am a federal agent? And you said, really? What agency do you work for? And they were like, no, no agency. It's not my own federal agent. <laughs> that would get a little bit more than a sideways look, right? You would be like, okay, not really federal agent. You just think you are a federal agent, but you are not in any affiliation with any federal agency. And yet, we live in an age where it's almost, it's all too common, in fact, it's almost acceptable for people to say, I'm a Christian. What church do you go to? No church. It's on my own. Making it up as I go along. Why is that? Why is that? There's a lot of reasons why that is. A lot of reasons culturally why that is, but uh, you know, the reality is when we think about it in, in all those terms with all those illustrations, it's kind of silly. It's hard to be. It's very difficult uh, to be. Uh, it's very difficult to carry out what God has called us to do without being in formal affiliation with the church. And so first, what baptism does is it brings us into that formal affiliation with the life of the covenant community. Now, when we do membership, we bring people into membership at ResPres on the first, of, uh, day, the first Sunday of every month, we explain, we go through a bunch of, of, of New Testament passages laying out all these obligations that we have as Christians to make a public confession of faith, to submit ourselves to the elders of the church as they care for us according to God's word, to regularly gather together. Um, all, there's all of these commands that it's just not possible to fulfill if you are not in at least some sort of formal affiliation with the church. We express that in the idea of church membership. We take vows. We take vows that we are going to do what God calls us to do from the New Testament. Uh, and so part of baptism isn't just praying. We we're not called to just go out, pray for people, and leave them there. We're called to bring them in and to bring them into a formal relationship where they are able to benefit from the support and the accountability of the church and the officers of the church that God has put into place to care for our souls. Second thing baptism means is that we are brought to share in the divine life of God through our union with Christ, which is the beautiful part of it. In the, the Bible talks about our sacraments being a sign and a seal. A sign meaning that they are symbolic of the, rep- of the realities that they represent. And so when we're baptized, uh, it is, a, it is a, a visible symbol of everything that is true about us because of God. In the ancient world, water was thought about in the terms of, of, of chaos and of death. And so to go underwater was to go under the power of death. And to come back out of the water was to come out into life, and that symbolism is throughout our understanding of baptism, so that when we are brought under the waters of baptism, we go under death with Christ, and when we, we symbolically come back up out of that water, we're being raised into new life with Jesus as symbols of what is really absolute, actually true about us. Uh, this are not, it is not something that we do primarily out of allegiance to God. It is something that God is doing for us, for our benefit. He's giving us this visual 
picture to help us have a better mental foothold on the reality that we have with Jesus. If you have been baptized in the faith and you're persevering in faith, you have died. The gospel passage we read earlier highlights that, that by the power of God, we have died with Jesus. And we have been, past tense, raised from the dead with him. We have passed through judgment because Christ has been judged for us. And we have been made alive by the power of God. That's what baptism brings us into. That's the sign. But it's also a seal. And a seal is an ancient thing from the ancient world. Kings would have signet rings or they would have a seal that they would press into a wax stamp and it would guarantee that this letter or this package or whatever it was, 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 was comes with the authority and with, the, with authenticity from the king. And so when this is applied to baptism, when it's applied to the sacrament, it's giving us the understanding that this is God putting his seal on us. This is God verifying that this one belongs to me. Again, it is not something that we do for God, but it is God's declaration to us that we belong to him and that everything symbolized in the sign of our baptism is authentic. It is true of us that we have union with Christ and that his spirit is powerfully at work in us now. And so, summary. Point two. This is why the goal of going out is not just to pray with people and to leave them there. The goal is to bring people in to full communicant membership in the church where they can benefit from all the responsibilities and all the privileges that God has given us in the church. But even that, there's still more. Last point, point three, is the purpose of the church is to grow up believers in a holistic Christian faith. Look at verse 19. Uh, Verse 19 and 20 again. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. One of my favorite stories from seminary was one of our theology professors told a story of this United Methodist minister uh, who, would, who would preach, and, and one day after one of his sermons, a young woman came up to him that was part of the college that he was affiliated with, and she said, she said, I just wanted to tell you that I fall asleep pretty much every sermon that you preach, and the reason is because you're just not connecting with me. You're not speaking to me uh, and to any of the issues I face. Uh, you're just not speaking to me as a woman in the world, and I, I find it irrele- irrelevant. And his answer, the answer was brilliant. He looked at her and he said, he said, young woman, if you're a Christian, you are not primarily a woman in the world. Primarily you are in Christ. And you need to understand and grow in what that means. And then the professor launches into this discussion about the four Ds, drama, doctrine, doxology, discipleship, and our understanding of growing in the Christian faith. He talks about the Bible is a drama. It's a story. You don't 
go to the Bible and want to know about sin, look in the table of contents, find sin, flip through the pages, look sin, and it says everything about sin. It's not like that. It's in a story format. It's in a drama. It's a beautiful, compelling, coherent story from beginning to end about God's revelation of his salvation in the world. And then from that story, from that drama, we even then pull out the doctrines. What does it say about sin across the whole? What does it say about God? What does it say about Christ? We pull that doctrine out and the doctrine that becomes the grammar of our faith, not grammar in the sense of verb and noun and, and, and whatnot, but grammar in the sense of the building blocks, the foundational truths of our faith, what we need to know so that we can think and operate like Christians in the world. And then once we know that, it produces in us doxology. We praise God. Because the more you understand God, the more you will find him beautiful. And the more beautiful you find him, the more you will want to know about him. And it creates a spiral of ever-increasing relationship where you are drawn more into the beauty of God for who he is and who he's revealed himself to be. And it's that love for God through who he is and for what he has done that is the fuel of our discipleship. That's what gives us the power to go out into the world that hates us and hates Jesus and proclaim the gospel and live lives that are totally out of step with the prevailing cultural winds. It's our love for God that produces our ability to do that without burning out. And from the very beginning, from the earliest days of the church, the church has set up schools to teach us how to do this. In the very early, early church, they set up catechetical schools and monastic schools and then cathedral schools in the Middle Ages that eventually morphed into universities, which then apostated and went south, and now we have seminaries. Uh, But always, the church has always been engaged in the practice of teaching Christians all that Christ has commanded us. Teaching Christians not just how to believe, but how to think and how to act according to the reality of God that we live in. And so thus to be lights in the world. The very most basic goals throughout the course, the history of the church until just a short time ago was for all Christians to have a basic understanding of the apostles or the Nicene Creed of the Lord's Prayer and of the Ten Commandments. Now, if we went to a church today and we asked people randomly to recite the Ten Commandments, that would be, a, that would be a, a, an awkward moment, would it not? It could be a very awkward moment. To ask people to recite the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed would be an awkward thing. When we were in China, we went to this little church in Wuhan, 200 people. They recited the Apostles' Creed in Chinese, from memory, with gusto, that put us to shame. We were shocked. We were like, "Was that the? Did they just say the Apostles' Creed in Chinese? Like it was? Like they meant it? They did. It was beautiful. And it's not just so we can know facts, so we can learn theology, so we can impress each other with our knowledge. But these things train our minds to be in conformity with the reality." the supernatural reality that's laid out in the Bible so that we can then be blessed and we can be a blessing to other people. Uh, And we are very much this year going to be working on our process for that. We're going to be simplifying what we do as a church. Um, All of it is going to be geared towards that pathway of discipleship. How do we bring people in? 
How do we baptize and people, bring them into the covenant community, and then how do we train them up in these basics of the faith so that they can then be witnesses and go out? To be, to go or to move in the pathway from convert to mature believer serving the church in the world, which is a good definition uh, for what we mean when we say a holistic Christian faith, one that is not only believes like a Christian, but also thinks and acts like a Christian. Because we live in a world, we live in the world that has tried to separate the ideas of fact from feeling. In the works of Francis Schaeffer, author from the 1960s, or one of his students, Nancy Piercy, she wrote a book called Total Truth. She talks about how we, uh, we disbelieve anything that cannot be observed with the senses, and so anything that doesn't fall in the category of material substance goes in this other category of feeling, faith, non-reality. And the world expects us as Christians to operate like that, to take our faith, to take all the things that make life beautiful, like love and abstract art and, and, and feelings and uh, uh, all these things that make life worth living and put them in the category of fantasy and operate in the public realm according to just their beliefs. <laughs> But a Christian faith, a holistic Christian faith, calls us to, to have our faith and our beliefs and our realities inform everything we do, everything we do in life. If, for example, there is a personal creator God who has created mankind in his image, and therefore we, 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 we receive our dignity as people based on the image of God within us, we cannot condone or go along with the wholesale slaughter of children in our culture. We have to oppose that peaceably. Uh, and in the same way, if we see any kind of abuse that degrades the dignity or personhood of someone in any way, based on who they are, their religion, their gender, their race, we also, we cannot condone that. We have to oppose that peaceably. We have to let our Christian faith inform everything that we do. And, and here's the thing. That real truth, real beauty, real goodness are defined or are pure based on how they are in fidelity with the character of God, who is the foundation of all those things. In other words, the more uh, we reflect who God is, the more we are in, uh, in, in harmony with who God is and how he's created the world to be, the more we will be able to reflect truth and goodness and beauty into the world and so thus be lights in the world and so thus proclaim, have opportunities to proclaim the gospel to people that we meet. The more we know God, the brighter lights we become. Not that some people won't hate that light, but we will be able to shine brighter in the world. And so that's our goal is to teach so that we uh, teach everything that Christ has commanded us, so that then we might raise people up and send them back out in the world. So you see, it's cyclical. We go out. We bring people in. We raise people up. We send people out. We bring those people, bring people in. We raise people up to think and act and believe like Christians, and then they go out, repeat, Repeat, and so thus the kingdom of God comes into the world now through you. 
through us. And so that's it. All you have to do is just go out, find people that hate God, bring them into full church membership, and that's it. We've got this, right? Look at the the very last thing, concluding the very last thing that Jesus says. He says, uh, or no, the first, the reason I wanted to bring in the first two verses was because of the first thing that Jesus says, or the first thing that Matthew says, when they came and they saw Jesus, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Most translations will translate that verse as some doubted. But it's really, it could be translated either some doubted, or it could be partitive, or it could mean every, they all doubted. It could mean they, but they doubted. It's the same word that, that Matthew uses for Peter when he, in faith, walks out of the boat onto the water, but then he becomes afraid and he doubts and he starts to sink. In other words, I think it's a better translation to say that they all doubted, not in the sense of doubting Jesus, but in the sense of being uh, uh, hesitant. Like, you're calling us to go out to the Greeks? To, to the Jerusalem who just killed you? You're afraid. And we get afraid. Don't you? I get afraid. Constantly afraid. It scares me to witness. And you never get over it. You know, at first it's like, oh my gosh, someone's going to talk to me about the problem of evil. What am I going to say? And then you learn, you learn, and you're like, oh, someone's going to ask me about the inconsistency of 12th century manuscripts. What am I going to say? It, it never ends. It's always something to be afraid of. But Jesus, because of that, because of that, he bookends the great commission to us with promising that he has all power and promising us that his presence is with us. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And behold, at the end of it, he says, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. And the, you know, the reality is that there's, we couldn't do this if it weren't for the presence and the power of God with us. It would be impossible. Think about what we're up against. Think about the competition out there, the alternative views, all the heresy that competes for people's minds. And if you think people are making theological decisions based on thinking through all the issues, they're not. They're making them based on relationships and the people that come and love them for the most part. Think about all the spiritual paths that actually elevate your standing in the community and make you celebrated. All the spiritual paths that don't ask you to conform to a restrictive sexual ethic or ask you to live simply so that you can give away a bunch of your money. If I didn't believe in the doctrine of unconditional election, I would go insane with fear, with despair. But the truth is, Christ has called us to go out and do this knowing that his power and his presence is with us. He is with us. And that, those words in this passage is what hit me hardest as I meditated on this and studied it. See, I always kind of assume we just got out of the Christmas season, out of Advent. We talked a lot about Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And I think I had just always un critically assumed 
that that meant the incarnation meant that Jesus was God with us. But that at the ascension, that came to an end. (laughs) That Jesus isn't really with us right now. But here he is right before the ascension, assuring his disciples that he would be with them to the end of the age, which means that he is with us now. It means that we are with him now. The whole purpose of the incarnation was to come and suffer crucifixion for our sins, to live a perfect life, to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf and win our salvation for us so that we could be with him forever. And he has sent his Holy Spirit now in his absence so that he is now with us. And at the end of the age, he will come back to be with us and we will be with him forever. So the reality is that we have been and are now and will be with Jesus or him. He will be with us now as we go out to do this. So it's not about your ability to be articulate. It's not about your mastery of 12th century manuscript textual criticism. It's not about your ability to explain every apologetic argument of defense against the faith. It's all about you and us and me realizing that God has promised to be with us with his power. So all we have to go is go out and speak and share. Simple. Scary, yes, but simple. Which means that we are all on the search and rescue team. And God has given us the opportunity to be his ambassadors as he works the power of life over death in his people that he is calling to his name. That's what we do. That's who we are. That is what the church does. So really all we have to do is stop making excuses and trust that God is going to work through us. Amen? So here's the challenge. Here's the challenge for this year. Oh, and everybody, everybody's goal this year for ResPres is to make one disciple. Just one. You got 12 months, a whole year, to wake up every morning and think and pray, God, give me opportunities to share my faith with an unbeliever, with a post-believer, with an unchurched believer. Give me opportunities to share and to bring them in and to see you work life. We're going to be talking about this a lot. We'll talk about it more next week, more in the how of all that happens, what the parts of the body do together. As we engage in this, we're not asking everybody to be an evangelist or a pastor, but everybody to come to grips with the reality that this is what we are here for. This is what the church does. We are a church plant. We need to grow. We're all going to work together in this, and I want everybody to have this mindset. I am going to make one disciple this year. Amen? Christ promised us his power and his presence with us, and he is good and we can trust him. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you that you have blessed us with the opportunity to share the faith in the world. We pray uh, that you would strengthen us and encourage us. Lord, we have the opportunity to be a part of the biggest thing ever.
eternal things, things where we will see the fruit of it and the beauty of it throughout eternity. Lord, help us to not be fooled by the world. Help us to not fall into silly temptation and think that life is about the next sensual pleasure that will fade like the flower of the field along with us, along with our bodies. Help us to keep our mind and our sight on the things above. Help us to run well and run fast and run to the end and to glorify your name as we bring people into your kingdom by the power of your spirit. Amen.